SETI's search for ETs, and NASA's new science chief. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The SETI Institute has been searching for intelligent life in the universe for decades. The organization of more than 100 scientists is on the hunt for extraterrestrial life using ground, space, and radio telescopes to search for signals from another life form outside our own planet. We'll check in with one of the Institute's senior astronomers about those efforts and how technological advances are getting us closer and closer to hearing from another form of life off-planet. Then, NASA has a new science chief. Before becoming the head of NASA's science missions, Nikki Fox ran the agency's heliophysics division, studying the sun. We'll revisit a conversation with Fox about those efforts. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. For ages, scientists have asked whether we're alone in the universe. With more and more breakthroughs, like the discovery of exoplanets, planets outside our solar system, and telescopes with greater sensitivity, we're closer now, more than ever, to answering that question. Since 1984, the SETI Institute has been actively searching for evidence of life on other planets. Here to talk more about those efforts and the likelihood of us finding that life is Seth Shawstack. He's a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Seth, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Brendan. You are a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. For our listeners who may not be aware, um, what what is SETI? What what is the organization's goal? Well, the SETI Institute is a uh, nonprofit organization. It's a research organization, and uh, our scientists, and there are about a hundred of them, are involved with the uh, the question of life beyond Earth. So, life on you know the worlds of our solar system, but also the possibility of life on planets around other stars far away from our solar system, including looking for uh, intelligent life. And, and how is that search going? Tell us a bit about the work that SETI is up to uh, in recent days. Each of these uh, kinds of searches make progress in usually instrumentation or the extent of the search. In the case of SETI, which is kind of the uh, flagship uh, program here, what we are about to do is embark on a listening program, if you will, uh, trying to pick up ET's transmissions using the Very Large Array in New Mexico. And we don't take control of the Very Large Array. We just tap off some of the cosmic static being picked up by that array, analyze it, looking for signals that are produced not by natural phenomena, such as quasars and pulsars and all those, but rather produced by a transmitter. And that would tell us that somebody's out there. So you are listening for, for cosmic noise that is not caused by anything natural, right? Is, is, that, is that a good not summation nature. of what you're yeah. working I mean, there are a lot of uh, radio emitters in the universe. We've learned about them for, well, it's been probably 60 or 70 years now we've known about such things. Pulsars, quasars, all those sorts of things. But we're looking for signals that by their characteristics could only be made by a transmitter. And mostly what that boils down to is signals that are very narrow band. They only extend over a very narrow range of frequencies on the radio dial. It sounds like this is like looking for a needle in a haystack, right? I mean, if if there is intelligent life out there and it's sending out these radio signals, it, it's going to be very difficult to spot these, right? I mean, can you just give us the, 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 the scope or, or the difficulty of a task like this? Well, it's not necessarily difficult. I mean, that depends 
on, you know, how many societies out there have big transmitters, whether any of those transmitters are either powerful enough for us to pick up or are aimed in our direction because they've, you know, looked at uh, our solar system. They see, hey, that third rock from the sun has an atmosphere and, you know, uh, components in its atmosphere that suggest there's uh, advanced life there. So we don't know whether it's difficult or not. We don't know, uh, you know, the parameters that would sort of define for us whether we should expect success in the near future or maybe a much longer time than that. We don't know. So far, we haven't found any such signals. So that suggests that either our sensitivity is not good enough for this sort of experiment or there's just nobody at home. Uh, Seth, tell me a bit about, you, you talked a little bit about advances in, in instrumentation. Um, the SETI Institute's been around for, for decades. Um, how have things changed over the years? And, you know, is that equipment that you're using to listen to these signals, is it getting better? Well, obviously the technology has advanced and considerably. When the first search for extraterrestrial intelligence via radio waves, for example, was made back in 1960, 1961, Frank Drake, who did that experiment, yes, he had a reasonably large antenna, which always helps because, you know, you can find fainter signals with a big antenna. He had an antenna that was 85 feet in diameter. Now, today we use an array of antennas, the very, I'm sorry, the <laughs> Allen Telescope Array in Northern California, about 300 miles north of San Francisco. And that consists of a lot of rather smaller dishes. But on the other hand, the total collecting area is equivalent to an antenna 100 feet in diameter. So it, it, it adds up. But the real difference is in the receivers. Uh, the receivers that were used for the early experiments could only monitor one channel at a time, one small range of frequencies at a time. Today, we can cover a much greater range of frequencies, which, to my mind, increases the chances that we'll find something. Tell me a bit about why radio signals. Why, why, is, it, why is this the, the particular indicator that, that you are looking for and, and are interested in and, and would kind of prove that there is extraterrestrial life out there? Why radio? Well, if you, well, if you want to find the aliens, I mean, you sort of have to make a, a guess as to what they might do that you could measure, right? I mean, you know, there are all sorts of things they might do. Maybe they're flying around in their spaceships, colonizing all their nearby stars. Well, I mean, how do you find that? But if you assume that they engage in some sort of communication, how would you send bits of information from one star system to another, for example? Well, radio. And radio, of course, means you know, any electromagnetic radiation. So that includes, you know, things like, well, what we call television, that's also radio, of course, but even, you know, flashing laser lights, that's also electromagnetic radiation. So if they use any of these technologies, well, then we have a chance of finding them. Seth, you mentioned that the technology is getting better, but also one of the things that I found so fascinating over the few years that I've been covering the space industry is the discovery of exoplanets and, and the fact that we now know that pretty much every star probably has some planets uh, orbiting it. How does that factor into the work that you're doing? Does does that make things seem a little more optimistic that you might find something out there in, in our lifetimes? That's one of a series of astronomical discoveries that have uh, underscored the reasonableness of a search for ET by you know trying to pick up signals. I mean, when that was first done, as I say, in 1960, Nobody knew whether planets were common in the universe or very rare. There were theories of planet formation that suggested it might be, you know, a very, very unusual phenomenon for any star to have planets. Well, 
that's been set on its head, we now know that planets are really very common. Uh, they're as common as cheap motels here in California. So uh, we, we know that planets are common. We also know what you know the percentage of planets is that would be somewhat like the Earth. In other words, able to support life. Planets with liquid water, atmospheres, those sorts of things. And while that's still slightly tentative, the Kepler space mission has given us to understand that maybe one in every two or three stars, that stars that are like the sun, and those constitute about 10% of all stars, that uh, you know one in two or three of them has a planet the same size as the Earth at the right distance from that star to have you know livable temperatures. So it looks like we found a lot of habitat out there. And if there's a lot of habitat, then maybe some of that habitat is populated. Will we ever communicate with these ETs if, if, if they're out there? I mean, space is so vast. These, these signals are traveling over, you know, vast amounts of space. Is there a sense that we may be able to have a two-way communication with what we do find out there? Well, I don't think that the difficulty is in the distance of these worlds. I mean, you know, all you have to do is have a big antenna and a fairly powerful transmitter, and you could easily produce a a signal that they could pick up or vice versa. But the question is, how far away are they? If they're 100 light years away, and, you know, that's entirely possible, if they're as much as 100 light years away or more, then every exchange of information like hello and then hi, you know, that takes 200 years. So that may be a more uh, uh, limiting factor when it comes to actual conversation. If the aliens are much closer, if they're less than 20 light years away, then the delay is not so onerous. But, you know, the, the real problem is that the universe is big. So, so tell me a bit about the work that's on the horizon then, Seth. What, what, is, what is happening in, in the coming years that, that may help us find these signals? Well, I think that the, most of the progress in this field, until you actually pick up a signal, you can say that most of the progress is to be found in the instruments that are used for the search and the extent of the search, right? We've been uh, using existing radio telescopes ever since the beginning of this sort of uh, effort. And, you know, that saves you the expense of having to build an antenna and outfit it with the requisite electronics. We don't have to do that. Uh, It is the case that we prefer to design our own receivers because the receivers that are made for conventional radio astronomy are really not very suitable for finding signals that are produced by, you know, somebody trying to send you a message. Those would be relatively narrow band signals. They'd be at one spot on the radio dial and over a very narrow range of frequencies. So those kinds of, uh, sorry, receivers have been built and they have been used and are being used not only on the Allen Telescope Array, which is the SETI Institute's own antenna uh, array up in, well, it's about 300 miles north of San Francisco, as I may have mentioned, but also for other SETI experiments, such as what's uh, considered a, a uh, piggyback experiment using the Very Large Array in New Mexico, where you know the VLA is doing its own research, but we tap off some of the uh, uh, cosmic static coming into the receiver's and analyze that using a SETI receiver. So that would give us uh, an awful lot of telescope time on a very big instrument. What happens when you do find that signal? Well, I think that what will happen, I mean, procedure aside, I think what will happen is that it'll become a very big story essentially immediately because uh, what you would do if you found a signal that looked like it was actually the aliens on the air is you'd get in touch with people at some other radio observatory and say, you guys check this out too, will you? 
because you wouldn't believe it if you could only find it with one uh, instrument. So it would very quickly become a worldwide phenomenon uh, that I assume the newspapers would be covered with stories about this. It would be really quite quite an interesting thing and a, and a paradigm shift in whatever that means uh, for humanity, because now we know we're not the only game in town. Mm-hmm. And Seth, have you thought about that moment when when that happens, when you know you are you know working and, and observing, and that signal comes when when you're around. What what is that going to be like for an astronomer who's dedicated you know a big chunk of of his life searching for this? We don't have to guess at that because we've had a false alarm at least one in 1997 where we thought we had picked up a, a signal. So we know what happens. What happens is immediately you continue to monitor that signal and you know, run a whole bunch of tests, very simple tests, but very powerful tests to determine whether that signal is really coming from the cosmos or is just local interference due to homo sapiens right here on Earth. So that's what would happen. And uh, of course, having the signal confirmed by people at another observatory. We know how that goes because we've had to try it at least once. Mm-hmm. And I guess finally, Seth, is is, is this something that's going to happen in in our lifetime, I mean, are you optimistic that that you may be one of the astronomers that observes one of these signals that turns out to not be caused by us here, but actually another civilization elsewhere in the universe? Yeah, well, we, I hope so. I mean, we don't know, but I bet everybody a cup of cup of coffee that will okay. find a signal from <laughs> ET by twenty thirty five. So obviously, I'm optimistic. Whether that optimism optimism is actually justified or accurate, only time will tell. That was Seth Shawstack, a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Still to come, NASA's Nikki Fox is now the head of the agency's science division. We'll revisit a conversation about her earlier work at NASA, studying the sun. Are We There Yet is back in a minute, here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA has a new science chief. Nikki Fox will lead NASA's $7 billion science mission directorate, overseeing all of the agency's science efforts. Before becoming head of NASA's science missions, Nikki Fox ran the agency's heliophysics division, studying the sun. During that time, she was chief scientist of NASA's Parker Solar Probe, a mission currently orbiting and observing our closest star. I caught up with Fox in 2020 at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University's campus in Daytona Beach to learn about that mission and our efforts to better understand the sun. It's totally a new chapter. I mean, we have waited decades and decades to have measurements like this. It's long been dreamed of going into the sun's corona, which to me is just mind-blowing. You're going and studying an atmosphere of a star. I mean, you know, we think of the sun, it's a big bright ball in the sky, we think of it all the time, but it's a star. And so what we learn about that is also going to help us really understand other stars in other solar systems. And so, you know, it's it's a very exciting time. But we've, we've looked at the sun from every possible vantage point. We've looked in all different wavelengths. We've been really close, even in as close as the planet Mercury. But we've never gone into the region where all the magic happens. And so there are mysteries 
mysteries in the corona. For a start, it's 300 times hotter than the surface of the sun. Um, it's also that atmosphere that you see during a total solar eclipse. That is That plasma, that material, is continually accelerated. It suddenly gets accelerated, and it moves away from the star. And we really don't understand the mechanisms. There are many, many, many theories, as you can imagine. We're scientists. We love to come up with theories. But we've never been able to take the measurements to really be able to tell us what is going on that is causing our star to behave like this. And so um, it's a, a brand new chapter, Parker Solar Probe, um, right in close to the sun, uh, in the sun's corona, taking in situ measurements, solar orbiter now joining us um, that, that is going to go actually out of the ecliptic plane. And so of the thing around the sun's equator where all the planets are orbiting, solar orbiter is actually going to use Venus gravity assist to lift the orbit gradually until um, we can, for the very first time, image and see what's going on in the poles of a star. So, uh, yes, it's a great time to be a heliophysicist. Mm -hmm. Nikki Vox, as as you mentioned, there have been other studies in the past, but within the past two or three years, we've had these two spacecraft launch uh, to get very close to the sun. Why now? What what, what has made it so that these missions got the green light and, and they're able to carry out their mission? So a lot of it, I mean, there's been tremendous support for these missions um, for going on for decades, but really it took technology. It took us uh, the ability to be able to fly these missions. So for both um, Parker Solar Probe and for Solar Orbiter, heat shields, needing to have a heat shield that can withstand these these very big, not only big temperatures when you're close to the sun, but it's very cold out around Venus. And so you have to have something that is going to be able to go hot and cold and not change its properties. Um, for Parker Solar Probe, uh, we're up with temperatures of about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit oh, wow. on the front side of the heat shield. The main body of the spacecraft is a sort of balmy Florida February day of about <laughs> 82 degrees. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have to have these, these incredible leaps in technology and if you think 1958 was when uh, it was first discovered that there was a solar wind by, by Eugene Parker said, hey, I think this is, this is what's happening. It's continually moving away. And really since then, there's been a desire to go into the sun's corona. But if you think in 1958, not that I was here, neither were you, but in 1958, you see it on the movies, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had a, a, a phone in the kitchen and you went and dialed it with a rotary dial. And if you wanted, you know, maybe if the cord was long enough, you might make it to another room. Now think about when you have your iPhone and you hold it in your hand, just the sheer amount of technology um, that you have and you compare how we communicate now to how we communicated then. It took that kind of leap in technology, miniaturization. I mean, you do everything on your phone, probably everything but make a phone call, but everything <laughs> is done on your phone. And so... That would have been city blocks worth of, of, of computing power to be able to do that in 1958. Well, now we do just do that in the palm of your hand. So it was really waiting for the technology almost to catch up with scientists' dreams. And it's been nearly 60 years since the discovery of the corona and, and then flying through it. I mean, what are, what are we hoping to learn? What kind of questions are scientists like you hoping to answer from these missions? So the, the immediate questions, obviously you design your mission to answer the questions, was really why is the corona so much hotter? Why does it suddenly get this, we call it a temperature inversion. So instead, you know, you move away and suddenly instead of getting colder, it gets hotter. Um, and then why is it continually accelerated? Uh, why is it, you know, it's not just a, 
like pumping the gas on a car and then it just slows down. It is continually being accelerated. It moves out beyond all of the planets. In fact, it, it actually creates our protective cavity in the Milky Way. So as we are orbiting, as the sun and all the planets are orbiting around in the galaxy, it's actually creating this almost windsock um, effect around our solar system. And that actually protects us from the vagaries of interstellar space. Mm-hmm. And so that is all driven by the solar wind. And that's that, you know, it carves out this this protective bubble for us. And so there are questions of, you know, just, just why is it accelerated? Why is it continue, you know, heated? What causes um, these very energetic particles to suddenly get so energized that they move at half the speed of light? Um, they're the questions that we want, that we know we want to answer. Of course, with a mission like this, where you're going into to a region you've never been before, we expect to have a lot more questions to answer at the end of the mission than, than we have even now, which is always an exciting thing to do with science. And the Parker probe is, is sending data back. You're, you're gathering science from it. Um, what have scientists and heliophysicists like yourself learned, you know, in these first few chapters of, of, of the data coming back? So even on the very first orbit, we were surprised on some of the things we saw. Uh, there were some features that uh, just showed how much more structure and how much more activity there is, even in our first flybys. And of course, we're not uh, in our, our closest configuration yet, we've got a couple more Venus flybys to actually make us walk in very close. But even, you know, we were in a region where we thought, well, we might see some exciting stuff, you'll see something interesting. And all of this structure was in there. And, uh, you know, we, we saw all these little kinks in the magnetic field. Hmm. And at first we thought, well, maybe we're sort of in the neutral region and the just the this current sheet. So the region where you have a magnetic field flowing in one direction on one side and then flowing in the other direction on the other side. Maybe that's just sort of moving up and down over the top of the spacecraft. And that's why we're seeing all these little features. When we start putting all of the data sets together, you see what it isn't that. The actual magnetic field is kind of curving back on itself in like an S shape. And it takes a lot of energy to actually twist a magnetic field. It's like, you know, trying to trying to twist a big rubber hose. It, it always wants to spring away again. You've got to put a lot of energy into doing that. So we don't know why those little kinks are there yet, but it is certainly like a smoking gun. If they start relaxing, you're going to let a lot of energy out into the solar wind. And so maybe that is that is, you know, the first kind of clue as to why we're seeing this heating and acceleration. Um, we also started to see a big drop down in the amount of dust. There's uh, there's always been this idea that there's a dust-free region around the sun um, because you've got all the light pressure and everything else that, hold it, that will hold that dust back. But we've never been able to see it because we're looking through the dust. And so, you know, you can't look through a forest. You actually have to go around the other side if you want to see the clearing. Um, and so we're, but we're already starting to see dust decrease, even though we're not close enough yet to, to really be, be seeing it. But a lot of the, um, the theories and things that were imagined, we're starting to see reasons for, for why they may be there, even on, in our first couple of orbits. And as it gets closer and closer and closer, you're just going to find out more and more, right? Yes, we anticipate. I mean, of course, we could be wrong, but right now... Now we anticipate that um, these little features that we see will become just a lot more and a lot bigger as we get closer to the sun. And then what we'd like to know is what's actually causing them. What is making that magnetic field do a reversal? Because magnetic fields don't like to do 
they like to be straight. Right. So the, the solar orbiter, it's going to take a few years to get to where it needs mm-hmm. to be. But how will the solar orbiter kind of work in tandem with the Parker Solar Probe? So I'm excited actually about the early part of the mission when it's in the ecliptic plane. Um, so they ha- we have a lot of instruments that are very similar on the two spacecraft in the in situ instruments. Uh, so we have very similar um, plasma instruments that are kind of measuring what's coming in the in the solar wind. Uh, we have high energy particle detectors that are looking for those um, high energy particles associated with transients like shocks or flares or big sort of solar storms. Um, and then we have uh, measurements of, of field both magnetic and electric fields. And so we have very complementary instruments. So for me right now, we're in the same plane. We're actually looking at a lot of the same features. And there are many interesting configurations. You can have them radially aligned. You can have them where we think they're on the same magnetic field line, which is a sort of spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, we can have things where they're in quadrature, where one is looking at the side and the other is looking at the front. There's loads and loads and loads of really interesting configurations. So from the, the get-go, I think it's amazing to have the two of them there. As um, solar orbiter kind of precesses and comes out of the ecliptic, their science will go much more to the, you know, observing the poles. They've got a whole suite of remote sensing, all cameras that are looking in different wavelengths. And and I think that's very complementary because now they're taking images, they're looking at, they're really telling us what we're flying past um, as, we're, as we're zipping past. You know, you can start getting really high resolution views of, uh, of the sun as Parker is in really close. So they're incredibly, incredibly mm-hmm. complementary. This is going to be a simple question, I think, with a complex answer, but why study the sun in the first place? So the sun, many reasons. Uh, the sun is our star, and so studying the, the sun gives you a lot of information about how stars work in general. But we here on Earth, we live in the atmosphere of the sun. So as that solar wind is accelerated and the coronal material starts to move away, it bathes all of the planets. And so we literally live in the atmosphere of the sun. So if you see, a, if you have a big coronal mass ejection or a big event, it can come and impact us here at Earth. A visible sign of it, of course, is the northern and southern mm-hmm. lights, and it's very, very beautiful, and we get excited. I started my career studying the northern lights, and so I'm you know, big, big fan of the aurora. But um, the aurora is a current system in the sky, and it looks for something to, to close. You know, you have to, a current has to be able to close. And so if the, if the ground is not c- uh, conducting, it will look for something else to flow through, like a pipeline or a power grid. And so as we become more and more reliant on technology, we actually are more susceptible to the vagaries of the sun. Um, satellites, we all use you know, satellite communications. Um, we take it for granted. Uh, your GPS signals, all this kind of stuff. Everything that we do now is so much more technology-based um, that we really do need to understand it so we can protect our planet and protect our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was a very famous event in 1959. It was called the Carrington event, and it was the first time that that we knew that uh, the Earth and the Sun were really linked. You know, Carrington saw this big flash of light while he was sketching a sunspot, and uh, a few hours later. Um, compass needle span and, you know, a terrible thing at the time, the telegraph system in the U.S. went down for four days. Now, I talk to my, you know, kids, I have young kids myself, and I say, the telegraph system went down for four days, and they just look at me like, oh, okay. And then I say... No text for four days. No text, no internet, <laughs> no, you know, Fortnite battle royale, nothing for four days. And they like, oh, that's terrible, you know. So, so um, it's it, again, it changes how it shows as technology matures, 
you know, we, we rely on it more and more. And so studying our sun is, is really important. But it's also really cool. It's a star. We're studying it and we're learning fundamental physics. That was NASA's Nikki Fox, now Associate Administrator for the agency's Science Mission Directorate. That conversation first aired in March 2020. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News and editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brandon Byrne. Thanks for listening.